This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Exodus chapter 7 through 12 is where we're going to be. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was doing a, uh, a wedding for a friend of mine in Broken Arrow. And it was a, a Sunday evening wedding, one of the Sundays we didn't have home groups. And normally, when, when I do weddings now, it's kind of got to the point where I let the couple know, hey, I'm probably not able to make it to your rehearsal, um, but that's okay. I know my part. And I will be at your ceremony ahead of time. We'll talk through it. And I, I promise you'll be married and everything will go well at the end. But for, for my friend, it happened that my schedule was free that week. And so I told him, yeah, I'll be, I'll be at the rehearsal. And so again, a Sunday evening wedding. He said, okay, great. The rehearsal is at 4 p.m. So I got my calendar out and on my phone quickly put in Saturday at 4 p.m. rehearsal because just most of my life, the wedding rehearsal is the day before the wedding. So imagine my surprise Friday at 4.10 p.m. when I got a text from my buddy that said, are you close? I thought, close to Jesus, uh, close to my wife, close to my kids. And so I called him. I mean, yeah, have you ever got one of those phone calls where just immediately your stomach drops and you know I screwed up? Like this is all, there's no way around this. Angie saw who I was calling. She was like, you missed it, didn't you? Like, I, I think I did. So I, I called him like, hey, I thought the rehearsal was tomorrow. He said, no, it's actually now. And everyone's here. We're just waiting on you to show up. I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Now, thankfully, I was just about 10 minutes away from where he was. I was able to change real quick, grab my iPad, had the order already done, rushed over there. We got it done. But it was that moment of when he called, I knew something had to change. There was no option for me to be like, ah, no, I think you guys got the day wrong. And you guys, you meant to show up tomorrow at four. That's what I have in my calendar. And then I I don't know if you've ever been in that moment where you walk in and everybody kind of looks at you like, oh, here comes the idiot, right? (laughs) You're the reason that we're not eating our rehearsal dinner already. Thank you so much. We're glad you could grace us with your presence. All of these. Now, they were very kind and gracious, but it's just that moment. But I, I had no choice. I had to go. I had to own it. I had to change what I was doing based off of what he had told me when he called. Now, I want you to keep that in mind, because as we work through Exodus 7 through 12, it's going to be tempted, tempting for us to read it as God coming in with an iron fist just to ground down the Egyptians. But what is actually happening is God is coming to communicate who he is and what he requires. And each step along the way, he's going to give an opportunity to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt to acknowledge who he is and to obey what he requires. And it is only when they resist that God continues to escalate his communication, continues to escalate his judgment. So so it's important for us to understand this is not just God coming to flex his power and might and show Pharaoh how big and strong he is. That is part of what's happening. But an even greater part of what is happening is in Exodus, it's the story of God making himself known to his people. So if you go back and read through Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll see that God is only mentioned one or two times, right? And and then as you shift into Exodus chapter 3, suddenly God is mentioned almost 50 times. And it seems that there's an intentional choice being made here of Exodus is the story of God revealing himself to his people. So in Exodus 1 and 2, there's this idea of the Israelites know God, like the the midwives when Pharaoh tells them to kill the baby boys. They know enough about God to fear him and not to do it. But there's no other mention of God or what he requires or how he intervenes or even that the people cry out to him in slavery. 
And so God begins to reveal himself to Moses. He begins to reveal himself to the the people of Israel. He begins to reveal himself to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. And we see even from Exodus chapter 6, God's plan from the very beginning. Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. I think we have it up here for you. God says to Moses, now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt everything I tell you. Exodus is the story of the God who makes himself known. It's a story of God not being satisfied with people who know about him, but being dedicated to revealing himself in a way where they know him personally. So he starts with Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And we can tell from Moses' response, he knows about God, but he doesn't actually know God. He doesn't walk with him in that personal and powerful way as he will over the remainder of his life. In fact, when God tells Moses, you're going to go back to the Israelites and tell them that I sent you, Moses' first question is, but who do I say sent me? Who do I tell them? They're not going to know. I'm not going to know. And so God begins this progressive revelation to Moses. And then he makes it clear to him, you're not just going to reveal me to the Israelites, but also to Pharaoh, to all of Egypt. And then as I lead you out to every nation on earth through the power that I will display in your deliverance. Exodus is the story of God making himself known. Dr. Ross Blackburn puts it this way, Exodus is simply the Lord's effort to make himself known among the nations for who he is. The God who rules over the universe and redeems those who call upon him. Exodus is the story of God supernaturally intervening in our affairs to get our attention, to reveal his purpose, to reveal his plan, and to invite us to follow him on the new path he's laying out for us. Now, as we start to move into Exodus chapter 7, we get into the the passages that that most of us will be familiar with as the 10 plagues. And this is really kind of a a section where we see it's the battle of the gods. So in Exodus 1 and 2, God does not seem to be known. Pharaoh is mentioned more than God is. In Exodus chapter 3, it becomes clear to us that God is the main character in the Exodus story. This is a story about what God does on behalf of his people. It's about God's commitment. So so we talked about a couple weeks ago, we find ourselves in the Exodus story. We find echoes of it in our life. And in each of our lives, we can find places and spaces where God made himself known to us in personal and powerful ways, not just so we would know about him, but so that we would know him and walk with him. And now as we move into Exodus chapter 7, we see that God is going to act in some incredibly powerful ways to draw the attention of Moses, of Israel, of Pharaoh, and Egypt to himself. But before the battle begins, God gives an invitation to Pharaoh. He says in Exodus chapter 5, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now, as we read through this this passage this morning, we're not going to have time to get into it in in real depth and read every verse that's in there. But if you you do, I'd encourage you to this week, as you read through Exodus chapter 7 through 12, what you're going to find again and again and again is phrases, uh, phrases like, Pharaoh's heart was hard, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but Pharaoh would not listen. Right? Or the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it, it brings up all of these conversations of, well, what was God's plan? Was God's plan to make Pharaoh just kind of this, this pawn in his story where Pharaoh has absolutely no ability to make decisions for himself? Was he predestined for a path of being obstinate against God? 
But what we see from Exodus 5 is that at God's first revelation of his plan, there is no threat of judgment. There's only an invitation. And the invitation is, Pharaoh, I'm the Lord. This is my plan. I want you to obey it. And Pharaoh's response displays that it's not like he was this kind-hearted ruler with a soft heart for his people. But from the first revelation of God, Pharaoh's response was rebellion. Who is the Lord? I don't know who that is. I'm not going to do what he says. And so it's revealing Pharaoh has a hard heart from the beginning. And each time God speaks, Pharaoh has a choice, just like you and I do when God speaks to us, of we either let our heart grow harder and colder in rebellion, or it grows softer in obedience. But from the very beginning, we see the path that Pharaoh is going to take. God sends an invitation. Hey, we don't have to fight. This battle is already done. It's over. You're not going to win. Why don't you just submit and do what I want? And Pharaoh's response is, no. I don't know who the Lord is, and I'm not letting Israel go. And so then in that case, God calls Moses to go pick a fight. Moses is called to lead the people out of Egypt, and that's going to include a direct confrontation with Pharaoh. And it's tempting to read the story that will, will come over the few, next few chapters as Moses versus Pharaoh. And that's the way it's told a lot, right? If you watch the Prince of Egypt, that's, that's the way it's, it's presented to you. But again, the main character of Exodus is not Moses. It's not even the people of Israel. It's God himself. And so in the battle of the gods, it is not Moses and Pharaoh, but it's God and Pharaoh. Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson in their book Echoes and Exodus say, The Exodus is a battle of the gods in which only one can emerge from the ring victorious. It is a mismatch. Battles against the Lord always are. Now, so again, we're, we're thinking, okay, if, if Exodus is part of my story and Exodus is part of your story, what does this mean? It means God is still relentlessly dedicated to destroying all the smaller gods and idols that you and I are tempted to give our lives and our worship to. And it might not be like Pharaoh where we have deceived ourselves and are, and are affirmed by others. Like Pharaoh's considered a god in Egypt. He's worshipped by his people. He's venerated as a supernatural being. We might not have that, but, but yet we still, in our, in our souls, like to believe that we are our own little gods. That we are the ones who control. We are the ones who rule. We are the ones who reign. And we're happy to let God come in and do the things we want him to do. We're happy to let him elevate our success and bless our life. But what God is teaching us in the story of Exodus is the same message he continues to teach us through Christ. That, hey, there is one Lord, and it's not you, and it's not me. And so he remains dedicated to his glory. He remains dedicated to his position as the only one on the throne. And he remains dedicated to going to battle against anything that would oppose him. And I, I love that line. Only one will emerge from the ring victorious. It is a mismatch. Battles against the Lord always are. We're going to see this throughout the story of Pharaoh's given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and he simply will not concede. My prayer is that you and I find our model not in the model of Pharaoh, but in that of Moses, who, when God calls him, says, I don't really want to do it, but you're the Lord, so here we go. In Exodus chapter 7, the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron. He will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. I think we read through this too quickly at times, not considering the, the incredible odds that are stacked against Moses and Aaron. 
They're being told, hey, we're going to take you from the backside of the desert and you are going to go confront the most powerful man in the world and you're going to command him to let this large group of slaves essential to the economy of his nation go because a God he has never heard of says so. I mean, can you just imagine the fear, imagine the trepidation? Maybe then we understand why Moses said back in Exodus 4, oh Lord, can you please send somebody else? It seems like a fool's Errand, And yet, as we continue to read through the story, we see that God is again and again demonstrating Moses and Aaron, you're just the mouthpieces. Pharaoh's real fight is with me, and I will fight for myself. It's also important, I think, for us to remember from the beginning that God picks this fight to communicate, not to crush. The primary goal of the Exodus is not to destroy the Egyptians, it's to liberate the Israelites. And that's, that's vital for us to remember because sometimes we, we kind of come in with this presupposition of Exodus is the story of an angry God pouring out his wrath on an undeserving people. This is where we get uncomfortable with the ideas of God's wrath and his judgment. And we, we're not real sure how that works with his mercy and his grace and his revelation of Jesus Christ to us. And, and for a lot of us, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if we come to it with this understanding of the plagues, the whole movement of Exodus is God's desire to communicate, not to crush. He's coming to reveal who he is, what he requires, and how we are to respond to it. And so if you later this week, if you read through Exodus 7 through 12, you're going to notice a pattern that recurs several times in the plagues. God speaks, Pharaoh disobeys. So then God acts, Pharaoh disobeys. And then God speaks again. The, the goal is not to destroy Egypt. It's to communicate to Pharaoh, I am the Lord and there is no one like me. Now let my people go. And he does it again and again and again. So we don't want to approach Exodus as a story of some childish God throwing a temper tantrum and pouring out his wrath on an undeserving people. That does no justice to the setting of the Israelites, to the oppression they've endured. It does no justice to the holiness and the righteousness of God. Now, and again, if Exodus is not just a story in the scriptures, but a story we read again and again throughout the scriptures, if it's a story of our lives, then what does this mean for us? It means God still uses our circumstances to communicate to us. God still speaks. So that same pattern, you can find it in your life. I can find it in my life. God speaks, whether it's through the scriptures or it's through the the prayer or it's through talking to another believer maybe it's through a message or a song God speaks and he gives me an opportunity when he speaks to respond and he expects that when he speaks we will respond but if we don't respond then oftentimes still God acts and he will stir up the circumstances of our lives to get our attention right God loves us enough that he will not bless the path that leads away from him But he will continue to use the difficulties and hardships of our life to turn our attention back towards him. And then in that space, God speaks, then God acts, and then God will speak again. So when when we're in those situations where life is difficult, life is hard, our first prayer is always, God, get me out of this. And I think that's that's a perfectly fine prayer to pray. But you should also pray the adjoining prayer of, God, what do you want to say to me in this? What do you have to speak? What do you have to say? What I've found in my life is when God is stirring the circumstances, it's usually to get my attention and focus me on something I was ignoring. Have have you ever had one of those days where everyone is annoying? Anybody? Yeah? Anybody having one today? 
Not brave enough to say it. There we go. We got a few. Yes, these people are driving me nuts. Uh, you know, but not where you're annoyed by everyone, because that would imply that it somehow has to do with you, but where just everyone annoys you. Like, I've had some of those days where, you know, I've come home from work or maybe I've just woke up that way, and I don't know why the whole world is out to get me. And I come to work, and it seems like everyone's determined to drive me nuts. And I, I drive home, and the people on the highway have all like got on a group chat and decided that the whole way home, we're all driving 10 miles under the speed limit, and we're not letting Chris change lanes, and we might even flip him off just for fun on the way by, right? And then I get home, and it's like my neighbor's dog is in on the act, too, and he poops in my yard right as I pull in the driveway. And, and, it's just, and then I go inside, and my wonderful, lovely children, they got the memo of, hey, today's the day that we drive dad nuts. And my beautiful, loving, caring wife, it seems like she had got it too. And, and she just picks and prods. And, and, and by the end of the day, you're just like, what is wrong with everyone? Have you ever had that moment? Now, if so, I pray you have a, a kind, loving spouse like I do who will speak words of truth to you in a very direct way that you can understand of, hey, if you've got a problem with the whole world, maybe you're the problem. It's like, clearly not. You should go pray. Uh, like, God has a plan for everyone to fall in line, right? And, and make my life easy and make my life comfortable. But if you've been in that moment, what have you found? God uses the circumstances of your life, your agitation, your aggravation, your annoyance to highlight something going on in your soul. Some of you, you found it in different ways. Maybe all of your relationships are suffering and everywhere you look is trial and hardship and drama and God speaks and says, hey, it's because you're bringing that into every space you go. Maybe the, the job isn't working out no matter how hard you try, no matter how many applications you send. And God's saying, hey, that's, that's because I'm trying to direct you on another path. Maybe you're applying for the scholarships as a, a student and they're just not coming in. And you say, because that's not where I want you to go. That's not the major I want you to pursue. I want you on this path over here. God still speaks. And if we don't listen, God still uses our circumstances to get our attention. And in that space, we still want to pray, okay, Lord, what are you saying? And then we want to respond to it. This is the pattern we see in Exodus. It's a pattern that we see all through the scriptures of God is committed to his glory and he's committed to revealing himself to us and leading us on a path that leads to life. But if we choose a path of destruction, he will come again and again and again to throw obstacles in our way to redirect us onto the path of life. When we receive that, we call it mercy. When we reject that, we call it judgment. And this is what we're going to see in the Exodus story, is that God is communicating to Pharaoh and to Egypt as an act of mercy. But because they reject it, they receive it as judgment. So as we jump into Exodus chapter 7, we're going to quickly kind of run through these 10 plagues. We don't have time to get in depth on each one, but, but we'll make a few comments about what God is communicating and how there is a response. So the first we see in Exodus chapter 7, the Nile turns to blood. Now we don't know if the water was literally blood. In Hebrew, blood can be both a substance and a color. All we know for sure is that whatever happens to the water, the fish die and it becomes undrinkable. Now the, the Nile is vital to the nation of Egypt. It was the number one reason that they were a prosperous and powerful nation. Even today, if you look at a map of Egypt, most of the major cities in that nation are built along the Nile River. 
And in ancient Egypt, the Nile was not just their source of life, but it was a god that was worshipped. It was the equivalent of their Wall Street, their agriculture, their oil fields kind of all rolled into one. The Nile was the reason they were so prosperous and powerful. And so by taking away its power to give life, God is pointing to himself as the greatest power. Now, what we also see in these first few plagues is that God is speaking directly and clearly. He's moving in supernatural ways. And yet these are not things that lead to death. They are more kind of mere annoyances. And so as you read through that that plague on the Nile, it says the water turns to blood, the fish die, the water becomes undrinkable, the streams and canals turn to blood as well. The water and the pots and troughs and people's homes and fields turns to blood. And so if this is that every water everywhere is now undrinkable, then it will lead to death in Egypt. But that's not the case. It says that actually the people of Egypt are able to go. They drill down on the banks of the Nile. They dig these little shallow wells and they're able to draw fresh water to drink and to, to continue to exist with. And so from the beginning, we see God is communicating that he is supreme and there's no God like him. We also see him communicating in a way where he's telling Pharaoh, hey, I'm going to start down here. I'm not going to come in with the heavy hand from the beginning, but I'm going to start here. I'm going to give you an opportunity to experience my communication as mercy, not judgment. When the Nile turns to blood, Pharaoh turns to his magicians. They perform a little trick to make some water red, and Pharaoh decides, okay, they could do it in a cup or a bowl. Moses does it in in the Nile River. Whatever, we're not listening to the Lord. And so because of Pharaoh's rejection when God speaks, God now speaks again, and he escalates it a little bit more. The second plague, we're told, is a plague of frogs. It says that they come from everywhere. Moses tells Pharaoh, they're going to be in your palace, they're going to be in your bed, they're going to be in your oven, they're going to be in your kneading trough. They are going to be everywhere. There's nowhere you're going to turn that they are not there. And so now this, I think we could all agree, like the, the water, having to go drill new wells, that's inconvenient. Frogs everywhere, now we're at another level. This is now I know some of you are like, hey, reptiles, I love them. You know, maybe it'll be a prince, whatever. It's, it's not, this is not a pleasant thing. Like nobody, when you go home this afternoon, none of you want to sit down on your couch and have 10 frogs crawl out of the cushion, right? That very few of us normal people are going to be like, that's sweet. Like we're all going to jump and run away. This is abnormal. And so when the the frogs come up, the, the most important thing that happens here is with this plague, Moses gives Pharaoh the opportunity to choose when the plague ends. He's trying to make it clear to him of, hey, listen, Pharaoh, this has come by the hand of God. And just so you know, you tell me when you want it to end. I'll pray to the Lord and it will end. So Pharaoh says, okay, I want it to end tomorrow. So Moses says, fine, it will. And it ends. It says all the frogs die. They're collected and and piled up in these huge stinking piles. The plagues are a multi-sensory experience. (laughs) there's, There's no denying in Egypt That God, like, I mean, just think of that. Even God in his wisdom, the frogs don't disappear. The carcasses remain. It's like, hey, look, that, that's what God did. Did you forget? Take a whiff, right? This is how he's acting. This is how he's moving. But again, Pharaoh makes no response, makes no change. His magicians are able to replicate it on a smaller scale. And he decides again that the Lord is not God. So we move on to the third plague of gnats, or the way that Hebrew word can be translated is biting insects. So it, it could include any realm of mosquito, other annoying. I mean, it, does it really matter at this point? Like swarms of insects that bite are never a pleasant thing. 
And when you get to this one, again, so, so the water's annoying. The frogs are definitely a little more annoying. And now we're getting to the gnats, the biting insects, where you can't avoid. They're everywhere. Like, this is, this is something we're noticing. The, the significance of the third plague is it's the first point where the magicians tell Pharaoh, this is a finger of God. We cannot replicate it. So at the, at the third plague, God is communicating, and the men of power in Egypt are first acknowledging this is a power we have never seen before. It's the first recognition of God in the land of Egypt. So again, the, the plague leaves. Pharaoh's heart is unchanged, and so it elevates from these biting insects to flies. Moses tells Pharaoh, you're not going to be able to step on the ground without a swarm of flies coming up. I mean, so again, multi-sensory experience. Can you just imagine? Who gets aggravated when one fly is around your head? Like I, literally, this week, I'm studying this passage. I was on my back porch at home. I've got my Exodus commentary. I'm reading about this plague, and two flies just keep coming by. And coming by and coming by. And, and, and even in that, I'm like, I don't know how Pharaoh didn't give up then. I'm like, swarms of flies? To where, do you know what that, like, you step and they pop up. They weren't wearing jeans like I have on this morning, right? They, they likely had on some kind of tunic, skirt-ish looking garment. Where do you think flies go? They go out. They go up, too, right? This is a, there is no denying. Now, the significance of the flies, it's not just that it's absolute misery, though it was. Right? Again, God is escalating. Okay, you didn't listen to, to the first three. Now let's go to here. But the significance of the fourth is it's the first time we're told, but Goshen, the land where the Israelites live, the plague did not affect them at all. The flies swarmed Egypt, but it's like there was a barrier around where the Israelites live. And so it's this differentiation between the people of God and the people who are oppressing the people of God. Again, meant to highlight the reality of this is coming by the hand of the Lord who is the God of Israel. It's also the first sign that Pharaoh is cracking. In Exodus 8.25, he tells Moses, go sacrifice to your God in the land. Now remember, Moses has told Pharaoh, the Lord has come. He said, let my people go out into the wilderness, every man, woman, and child. Let them take all of their flocks, all of their herds, all of their belongings, and go worship me in the wilderness. Now Pharaoh, he's been through four plagues. He's starting to realize this is something more significant than what he's used to. And so he begins to compromise. He tells Moses, okay, go worship the Lord in this land. Don't go out into the wilderness, just worship him here. But Moses provides a, a wonderful model for us. Again, if the Exodus is our story, this is the point where it's a great reminder. We're going to see it again and again. Several times in the plagues, Pharaoh is going to try to bargain down with Moses. Say, hey, I know this is what God wants. Can I get you to settle for this? I know God says every man, woman, and child, every animal that you own, all of your possessions out into the wilderness. Can I get you to settle for worship him in the land? I'll acknowledge that he's real. We'll, we'll add him to our gods. Can you worship him here? And Moses reminds us that, hey, when God speaks, when God calls, when God gives a dream or a vision, no matter how great or insurmountable it might seem, we don't bargain down to something more accessible. But we stay committed, trusting that if God called me to it, God will deliver me all the way to the full fruition of his promises. So Pharaoh starts to bargain. Mo Moses doesn't have it. And Pharaoh's heart, it seems like it's softening, but it's really not. The fifth plague is the death of the livestock in Exodus chapter 9. 
The Egyptians were pantheistic. They worshipped the sun, the moon, the stars, Pharaoh, the Nile, their crops, their rain, and all kinds of animals. Then their order of animal worship, livestock, were towards the top because they provided a source of income, a source of stability, a source of food for them. And so this plague strikes, and it says that the, the literal translation of it is that animals all over the, the land of Egypt die. It strikes their economy. It strikes their stability. Now, again, the, the first few plagues are mere annoyances. They're significant. They speak strongly to the work and the power of God. But when they're ignored, God then becomes a little bit more personal. He says, okay, if, if you're not going to listen, if you're not going to obey, then I'm going to strike where it hurts. I'm going to hit you just like it would hurt us. I'm going to hit you in your, in your finances. I'm going to hit your economy. You're going to lose your source of income. You're going to lose your source of stability. Again, Pharaoh doesn't listen. There's no response. And so the sixth plague God sends is boils. Okay, if, if, it, didn't, if it didn't change when it struck your finances, now we're going to strike your body. It says that boils broke out all over the people of Egypt. The annoyances of water and bugs, the death of their livestock haven't worked, so God gets personal and allows physical affliction to strike all the Egyptians. The boils are so bad that, that we're told even the magicians can't show up to help Pharaoh, which is significant because it means that God has reduced the men of power in Egypt to a completely powerless position. They're unable to come to comfort or care for Pharaoh. And yet, once again, Pharaoh doesn't change. So we come to the, the seventh plague, which is, is a little more extensive in its description. It is a wonderful teaching moment for us. God introduces a plague of hail that will destroy anything outdoors. But as he does it, he gives us two important reminders. First, he says in Exodus 9.15, speaking to Pharaoh, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Again, the point of the plagues is communication. It's an invitation to obey God and worship him. If God wanted to destroy Egypt, he tells Pharaoh, I just would send a plague and wipe you off the face of the earth along with all of your people. But the purpose of the Exodus is not to destroy Egypt, but to free the Israelites and in doing so, create a space and a story where God's name will be proclaimed in all of the earth. There is an evangelistic heart at the Exodus story. It's about God revealing himself to Moses, to Israel, to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and ultimately to everyone, everywhere. As a God who sees, a God who hears, the God who acts, a God who saves, and the God who liberates. The purpose of the Exodus, God says, is that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It's a wonderful reminder to us that our stories are always part of God's bigger story. That the circumstances of my life, no matter how big, no matter how troublesome, no matter how hard, are spaces where God works, he moves, and he tells a story of his grace and his mercy for me and for others around me. We also see in Exodus chapter 9, verse 19, that God gives Pharaoh and the Egyptians a chance to exempt themselves from the consequences of this plague. He says, Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Now again, if, if we hear echoes of Exodus through the scriptures, here we have God saying, hey, there is a way that leads to life 
And there is a way that leads to death. Choose the way of life. The way of life is the way of obedience. It's a way of recognizing who God is and doing what God says. And so now he tells the Egyptians, even if you're not going to set my people free as I've instructed you, at least here, listen to me. There is a storm coming like you have never seen before. So bring in your workers from the field. Bring in your livestock from the field. Bring everyone to a place of shelter. And if you do, they will live. But if you disobey and leave them out, they will die. It's the first plague that deals directly with human death, where disobedience leads to the death of men and women. It's a reminder to us of the ultimate effect of sin on our life. It's not just that we live a more inconvenient life. It's that we're choosing a path that leads to death. And as you read through Exodus chapter 9, you see that some in Egypt obey. They fear God and they bring in their workers and their animals and they're saved. And others reject the Lord. Their hearts are hardened even more and they suffer the consequences of it. Pharaoh still will not completely submit to God's plan. He will not agree to let everyone go. And so in Exodus 10, God sends locusts to destroy any crop that survived the hail. If this is the battle of the gods, and this is one more strike against the gods of Egypt, the gods of agriculture, the gods of a self-sustaining people, they are now completely and utterly ruined. They have nothing left. And so Pharaoh again comes to bargain. He's not ready to submit, but he comes to once again offer Moses a little more than last time, but still not all that God has required. Moses again resists. God speaks again and says, okay, you haven't listened so far, and so we're, we're going to keep escalating, and now a plague of darkness is going to strike the nation. Now, the, the, the darkness means a couple things. First of all, it demonstrates God's power over the sun, the moon, and the stars, all objects of worship for the Egyptians. And it also reminds us of the, the threatening nature. Now, for, for you and I, darkness is not as threatening as it would have been in the ancient world because we can always flip on a switch turn on our headlights, pull out our phone, and turn on the flashlight. We always have an option. But they live in a world where there's no way to really magnify light. There's no way to project it. It's really just a candlelight kind of world. And the darkness is not just the normal darkness of night, but Exodus translates it as a darkness that can be felt. The literal meaning of that is a darkness that requires groping about. It's meant to give us this picture of this plague of darkness was so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It is an all-encompassing, terrifying type of experience. And again, the nation of Israel is exempt from it. So while Egypt is plunged into this horrible darkness, the land of Israel cont continues on with the sun shining in the morning, the moon and the stars at night. It highlights the difference right, between those living in darkness and those living in light between those following the ways of God and those following their own ways, showing us all of these things. And, and even more than that, just imagine the terror, the anxiety, the fear, the doubt, the worry that this sows in the heart of Pharaoh and his people. I mean, some of us, we, we get depressed if the sun doesn't shine for two days, right? Like a cloudy day is like the end of the world for us. Of Oh my goodness, I'm never going to smile again. And then it comes out and we feel better. But can you imagine day after day of complete and total darkness? Not being able to see your spouse, not being able to see your children, not being able to find your way outside of the house. I mean, the, the threats are real. The danger is certain. And in this space, God is trying to speak to Pharaoh. Hey, let my people go. 
you're dealing with a power. I mean, God's displaying his power over the natural order of the world. And still, Pharaoh resists. He tries to bargain one more time. He becomes furious when Moses insists on absolute obedience to what God has commanded. And then we come to the 10th plague, which is honestly the the most difficult one, the hardest one for us to understand. It's the death of the firstborn. If you flip over to Exodus chapter 11, verse 4, Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or or will ever be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and your people and all who follow you. After that, I will leave. I think that the final plague deserves a little bit more of our attention and consideration because it is just brutal. But this, is, this is one of those moments that's thrown up at times as an objection to Christianity, an objection to faith in God, along with some other stories from the Old Testament that honestly are, are pretty violent. And the objection is, how could a good, kind, and loving God allow such horrible things to happen? And so we want to say a couple of things there. First of all, we're never going to answer those questions perfectly into the satisfaction of everyone. Now, you're never going to be able to argue someone into the kingdom. And if their, their heart is hard and set against the things of God, it doesn't matter how well-reasoned your arguments are. They're just never going to believe them. And yet as followers of Jesus, we want to wrestle with these things as well. Right? When we come to those questions, we don't just want to say, oh, the mysteries of God. Right? We might believe that, but oftentimes that's a phrase Christians use when we don't want to engage in a difficult conversation. Why am I suffering? Why am I hurting? Oh, the mysteries of God. God bless you. See you later. Why did my mom or dad split up? Why did somebody leave me? Why was I abused? Why was that? Oh, the mysteries of God. We don't, we don't really know. And, and so we want, when we come to passages like this, to stop and to consider what is God doing? How is God working? Why is God acting in these ways? I think as we do that with the, the plague of the firstborn, it's, it's really hard for us, right? This is one of those, it's why today is probably my least favorite message of all of them we're preaching in Exodus, Because you have to dive into some spaces where we don't have perfect, clean answers. Where we can't say, oh, well, one, two, and three, and that's why, and everybody agrees and moves on. But when God comes and says, I'm going to strike down the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. Everyone outside of Israel, the firstborn in their family is going to die. Firstborn in their household is going to die. From Pharaoh to the slave girl working at her handmill. It's really a a painful moment, so I think there's a, a couple things we have to consider. First of all, God is relentlessly dedicated to the freedom of his people. They have been in Egypt for hundreds of years under severe bondage and violent oppression. The nation of Egypt at this point in history is not an innocent bystander that God has randomly chosen to make an object of his wrath. But they are men and women who have willfully, joyfully, and repeatedly chosen to oppress the people of God for their own personal benefit. It wasn't just Pharaoh who decided to enslave the Israelites, but all of his people went along with it and benefited from it. They were the government administrators. They were the slave masters. 
They were the ones cracking the whip on the backs of the Israelites. They were the ones that when Pharaoh gives the order of we're going to kill all the baby boys, they were the ones snatching them and tossing them into the Nile to be drowned or to be eaten. And so as they have reaped the benefits of Israelites, the Israelite slavery, now they also bear the consequences with Pharaoh of it. They've also been in a spot where they have seen over and over again as God is moving, God is acting, God is demonstrating. They have been witnesses to the plagues. They've heard the stories of this is due to the God of the Israelites. They've been able to look at the Israelites and say, hey, while we suffer here, they are blessed there. And they're smart enough to recognize the connection. In fact, they even cry out to Pharaoh at one point of, hey, will you send them away? But their cries have not reached the point where they motivate their leader to do it. And then again, if Exodus is a story of the battle of the gods, then we have to consider even in this what seems so harsh and so permanent, the difference between God and Pharaoh. If you go back to the beginning of Exodus, you find Pharaoh telling the Israelite midwives, hey, your people are becoming too numerous. So when you go to deliver a baby and you see that it's a boy, I want you to kill it. Now, what what Pharaoh is actually telling the midwives to do is go instruct all the other midwives. And when you are there on the birthing stool ready to catch the baby as it comes out of its mother's womb, you are to choke the life out of that child and then hand the dead baby boy to his mother. Pharaoh's initial thought is I'm going to kill the boys in a way that the, the moms don't really know it's me. They just think, oh, it's a, a plague. It's only affecting boys. There must be some sickness, some disease. Now, when the, when the midwives refuse because they fear God, Pharaoh then escalates it. He says, okay, if you won't do it, then I'm going to take the baby boys, me and my people. We'll snatch them from their mothers and we'll throw them into the Nile ourselves. So Pharaoh has already instituted his own plague on the boys. And God is now coming and saying, look, you want to listen, you want to listen, you want to listen, you want to listen. You've oppressed, you've killed, you've robbed, you've stolen, you've wronged. I've tried, I've tried, I've spoke, I've acted, I've spoke again, I've acted. There's been all of these plagues, all of these supernatural signs, all of these people around you telling you this is the hand, the finger of God at work. Let these people go and still you refuse. So Pharaoh, now there is one coming for you. And in this final plague, even as God executes his judgment, he does it in a way that is merciful. Whereas Pharaoh snatches living babies and expects them to either have the life choked out of them or to be drowned in a river. It says that the angel of the Lord passes through Egypt around midnight and the firstborn of every household dies. The the implication is they die in their sleep. Now, it's still permanent. It's still hard. It's still a direct judgment of God. And yet there is an element of mercy in it even there, compared to Pharaoh. Now, I I don't completely know how or why God chooses to act in this way. But it seems that in his wisdom, he knows this is the only thing that's going to get the attention and the release of my people. And we find that, that Pharaoh does come back, and he tells Moses, it says, in the middle of the night, Pharaoh and his officials woke up, and there was a deep wailing in Egypt. And they told Moses and the Israelites, get up and go now. In the middle of the night, pack up and get out of here. We're done with you. We never want to see you again. God has leveraged Pharaoh to the point of obedience. It didn't have to take this long. But his heart was so hard. This is the moment where he finally said, okay, enough is enough. And as we'll see next week, Pharaoh quickly reneges on this promise as well. And decides, ah, yeah, I made a mistake. Let's go get him back. You know, his heart is so hard, so calloused towards the Lord. 
And yet in, in all of these opportunities where he could have experienced God's mercy, he instead chooses to experience it as judgment. And so as, as we work through the plagues, we're reminded again of this is God's communication. And it's our reaction that decides will it be experienced as mercy or will it be experienced as judgment? And the same thing maintains in my life and your life as well. When God speaks, when God acts, when he moves, will I experience this as mercy and respond to him or will I experience it as judgment? Mercy and judgment. This is what he's saying to us. This is how he's leading us. And even in that last story from the, from the, the plague of the firstborn, there's a, a little, little example there in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 where God speaks to the Israelites about how he's going to move. He says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. In Exodus 12, God institutes a celebration called the Passover for the Jewish people. It's to be an annual observance of their deliverance from Egypt. And a key feature of the Passover, where it gets its name, is from this idea that God's judgment passes over the people of Israel. As he passes through Egypt, he passes over the people of Israel. He's told them, look, a plague is coming. I will strike the firstborn in every one, in every household in Egypt, but you will be exempt from it. But even as they're exempt, God still gives them an opportunity to respond. He says, you are to take and sacrifice an animal and you're to spread its blood around the doorposts of your house. And when my angel passes through, he will pass over those homes. Again, it's a reminder of, yes, God's righteousness will result in his wrath being poured out in sin. But his plan is for his mercy to cover his people when his wrath and judgment are poured out. And so if we live in a world today where we're, we're in fear of God's judgment and where we see every difficulty or every hardship of, man, is God coming to get me? Is he trying to, we can relax. Because of Jesus, God's judgment still passes over us. He's given us the opportunity to experience mercy in every situation. So even if you're in a spot this morning where life is hard, where God is speaking through your circumstances, where he's stirring the things around you to get your attention, you can be sure he is not doing that to destroy you, but to save you. It's his kindness that will lead you to repentance. It's his mercy that will triumph over his judgment. And so receive his intervention as his mercy. And allow, in the same way the Israelites are told, hey, God's going to pass over, but you still need to participate. Put the blood around your door. In the same way, we come to the presence of the Holy Spirit, to the truth of the scriptures, and we're told, hey, Jesus, through his sacrifice, he has perfectly and forever satisfied the judgment and the wrath of God for you. But you still must choose to take your place. You're not going to spread blood on a door frame, but you're going to acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior. You're going to believe he has a path of life, and you're going to follow him in it. God's mercy triumphs over his judgment in every situation through the power, the presence, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we work through the plagues, what we're really working through is, is our response to God's communication. When he speaks, will we receive it as mercy or will we choose to experience it as judgment? 
and we find hope and comfort in God's relentless dedication to exposing his mercy to us, to pouring out his grace on us over and over and over again. God communicates not to crush, but to lead us to life. If you'll stand with me, I want to pray for us this morning. The band's going to come back and lead us in a a final song. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we come to you today. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here or watching online this morning that does not have a relationship with you, Lord, their their heart is far from you. Maybe it's hard or cold towards you. I pray today that you would speak, that you are the Lord and there is no other, that you have a purpose and a plan for their life, Lord. And I pray that as your spirit speaks, they will submit and obey. And Jesus, I pray for each one of us that as we find you speaking to us through the scriptures, through our circumstances, through all of life, in every space where we hear your voice, Lord, may our obedience result in it being an extension of your mercy. Forgive us, Lord, for the the times when we disobey. Forgive us for the times we turn away. Forgive us for the times we seek the establishment of our own kingdom at the expense of yours. Lord, I pray for anyone who's in the room today who who currently is in that spot of life is hard. Their relationships are difficult. Their school or job is uncertain. Lord, you're stirring the waters all around them. And in the middle of their prayers for deliverance, may they also take time to hear your voice. Lord, we don't always know if you send those difficulties to us or if you allow them to happen or if they're just the result of living in a world filled with sin, but whatever the cause or case might be, Lord, we want to pause today and say, what do you have to say to us? In the season of hardship, of difficulty, in a season of uncertainty, of frustration, of anger, Lord, what are you saying to us? What are you revealing in us? How are you showing us that you are the Lord and there is no one like you? How are you revealing your purpose and your plan? So, Holy Spirit, we pray in these moments that you would speak clearly and you would show us how through Jesus Christ we experience your mercy instead of judgment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As the band leads us in this final song, if you'd like someone to join with you in prayer, maybe to say yes to Jesus for the first time, maybe to deal with some other circumstances or problems that you're facing, if you'll head out the back doors and to your left, some of our pastors and prayer team members will be waiting to meet with you. The rest of us, we're going to sing this final song this morning as a reminder of God's tremendous love and mercy that are extended to us in Christ. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.